This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend. Uh, today, we're happy to present you with a, uh, a crew chat. So, really excited to have three members of the crew here, myself. So, we'll, we'll get to some introductions here in just a moment so you know who who is uh, with us. But for me, big news, heading out to Oregon here in uh, T-minus seven days. Actually, this time next week, I'll be... Uh, hopefully climbing up the side of the hill with Ben, uh, rifle in hand, looking for black bear. Uh, other than that, that's it. All preps going forward, trying to wrap up things before I leave. And as always, I will plug our amazing and entertaining Adventures for Food podcast, which uh, is a great way to hear some quick, short stories uh, along the way. Uh, it, it operates on this same podcast channel as the Wild Fishing Game podcast. I guess it's a a sub podcast you could call it but it's a just short story adventures for food pretty self-explanatory we welcome anyone and everyone who has a good story to share so if uh if you're interested in that reach out to us what's cooking at harvestingnature.com is a great email address and uh we're happy to hear your your stories and and uh see what's going on in the world of hunting and fishing and food so um Let's see, Colin, you want to give a quick quick plug for the community page on Facebook? I sure do. Yeah, I just want to put another plug out there for our Facebook community page. It's the uh, Wild Fishing Game um, Wild Fishing Game page and the Harvesting Nature Facebook community. Uh, we have a lot of really great 
engagement on there, a lot of really good posts. In fact, our special guest today is, is one of our more avid posters on there. Uh, but it's a great place for people to go on, share their recipes, share their ideas, talk about stuff, talk about variations in recipes. Uh, we really encourage people to, to look for it and, and join there and uh, get involved in our, in our community that we've built. Yeah, it's awesome. So what, what are you up to these days? Uh, I'm actually preparing for the bear hunt <laughs> that I will be joining you on. I noticed how you left oh. me out of that. Um, <laughs> but I, I will be joining Justin and Ben on this mountainside crawl uh, next week uh, for a few days and looking forward to that. Got a couple extra supplies going on, um, waterproofing my boots. Uh, I don't think they realize, or I don't, I don't know, Ben does. He's out here. I don't think Justin realizes how rainy it's going to be, how wet it's going to be great. out here. So excited. <laughs> I mean, we're literally going into a rainforest, so. <laughs> well, I just, I just yeah. bought new boots, so uh, hopefully, right. I didn't tell you. Well, if you guys listen to the, the podcast that came out today, you'll, you'll know that I blew out my boot last week uh, on, on my turkey hunting adventure, like completely like floppy sole, whatever. So I've been researching all week and then quickly also looking to see who can do expedited shipping because I need them here before next wednesday when i fly and i'm just like holy smokes i'm super nervous because you play the game online where you don't get to try them on and you're like is it gonna work is it not gonna work is this gonna last so we'll see it's a gamble <laughs> yeah definitely. uh yeah ho- hopefully i hopefully it pays off in my favor but um yeah we'll see um Let's see. So, buy us coffee is always love what we're doing. You can buy us coffee. Click the link in show notes. Uh, make a small donation, and then um, call and get some some still some love yep. from our buddies over at Allen Company. Yeah, we are uh, fortunate enough to be representing Allen Company, Allen Outdoors, uh, this month in a lot of our posts and a lot of the equipment that we're using. Uh, they have some really great material, some great equipment. And I would highly suggest going over to buyallen.com. That's B-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com, where you can use coupon code HARVEST10 for 10% off your order. Uh, they got plenty of stuff for spring turkey. It's not too late to get into that, uh, as well as all of your, your big game needs as well, gearing up for the fall seasons. We're gonna do, we, did this, we did this last week. We're going to do it again. we got a brief news segment here. Uh, so we brought Jim Hazley back on. Uh, there's a lot going on in Florida these days, as always. Uh, very dynamic here. So uh, he's going to give us a quick update on uh, what we talked about last week. And then we've got some more news to, to discuss. So I'll turn it over to you, Jim. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, to give you the one-minute update on our conversation last week about the proposed road through the Point Washington WMA, it appears we made a dent. Uh, We had hundreds and hundreds of people email in, sign petitions, a bunch of user groups. Uh, During the uh, Walton County Commission meeting, they did indicate they are open to removing the road from the plan. Uh, Perhaps a more likely consideration might be to uh, create what's called a special or a a needs plan uh, for the area, which would then kind of move, not take it out of the plan, but move it to a tier two. But uh, we won't know for another month exactly where we are. We're encouraging people to still communicate with Walton County Commission. Uh, but hopefully we're going to at least get a delay or, or hopefully have the road removed. But on to, uh, I think, the reason that I'm really here to chat this week. 
Uh, some big news on Monday, May 12th at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Uh, they're going to begin a process to review a discussion on adding a limited opportunity for Goliath grouper. And for those that are, that are unfamiliar, it's the largest of the grouper species. And when I mean largest, uh, think Volkswagen. Uh, they're absolutely massive. Yeah. Um, it's a, it is an absolutely fantastic success story in recovery. The fishery closed in 1990, closed in the Caribbean in 1993, um, partially because of uh, you know, fishing pressure and also just a reef, I should say, um, more mangrove habitat. The, mm-hmm. the juveniles love mangroves. And that's another great success story in Florida that, uh, you know, in 2004, there was only about 50,000 acres of mangroves in Florida, and now it's about 300,000. So that increase in the, in the in the number of healthy, thriving mangrove forests along the Florida South Florida coastline is providing a great breeding ground for not just grouper, but all kinds of other species. So um, we're really hoping that FWC is going to continue to consider this simply from the pressure that the the Goliath are starting to put on some of the artificial reefs, especially. It's making it really difficult on on sport fishermen to go out and, and, and get anything to the surface. Um, but they do need to watch it very, very carefully because the the grouper do tend to stay in one place once they've picked a wreck or once they've picked a reef. They don't really wander off much, making them kind of easy to target. But when they do leave, they'll go to different spawning areas that tend to recur year after year and they will travel great distances they tagged one that came all the way from like the savannah area all the way down to south florida hundreds wow. of miles but they'll congregate and you know the old salts still know where those places are so they can go out there and just hammer them um so because of those things uh and because the the species itself is then also really susceptible to things like red tide or when we have these really terrible cold snaps, they can put huge dents in the population all in one year. It is a it is a species that needs to be regulated and treated a little differently uh, than most of the species that we target. But we trust FWC. They've been researching this for decades. Um, this next meeting is not necessarily to determine whether there will be a season. I believe it's more going to be a conversation of what needs to happen to move in that direction. But for any of us that like pulling different species out of the water, considering that whatever limit they put on the on, on the Goliath grouper, there's going to be a lot of fish there if you decide to take one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I've caught them before. So uh, if, if you go back and listen to the uh, Osceola turkey episode, you'll you'll hear uh, my companion for that episode was uh, Craig Clopper, who's a charter fish captain down here in the Florida Keys, and he owns Goliath Charters, which he and I were chatting the other day when I saw the news came out. I was like, that's probably the best name you could have if they open up a Goliath season and people want to come down and catch it. <laughs> um, so, but he does, if you go hit up his Instagram too, Goliath Charters, you'll see like they end up catching a ton of Goliath and different varieties of fish out there, all catch and release, all very safely and uh, properly handled to release those back into the wild. But yeah, when uh, when Will and I went out fishing in the backcountry with him, we, we were able to catch some of the juveniles and even some of the middle, middle-aged uh, Goliath. And uh, yeah, man, they put up a fight. It's a it, it's a pretty cool thing to uh, to get into. And you uh, there's a trick 
that I learned in that that period too. So they they either go down in the rocks or in the reef, or they bury themselves back in a log. And you've got your line tight. If you like, take your finger and like pluck the line. It like messes with their their mouth and whatever, and they'll just freak out and they'll come back out. So you can get get them reeled back in, which is pretty cool. And that, I think that's a, a grouper wide thing, but uh, it, it was a pretty neat process. So. More to come on that. Hopefully we see some seasons open. I heard rumors, you know, one of the reasons they shut the season down uh, a long time ago is that it was such a popular fish to eat because out of all the grouper species, it's people say it's the best tasting. Don't know from personal experience. I will caveat that. Um, but just what I've heard, word on the street and historical accounts. But, yeah. I think the you can eat them in the Bahamas, right? You can catch and eat them. I think Elsewhere so. The people I have I have seen them eat them uh, was in the Bahamas, so I, I don't know. Yeah, I remember reading that when I was still down in the Keys that uh, it's catch and release there, but I believe elsewhere throughout the Caribbean and the Bahamas, uh, you can still eat them. Hmm. So maybe that's maybe that's where people have their opinions formed. You know, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Any uh, any follow on Adam? Any questions about Goliath Grouper? <laughs> no, I haven't. That- done any fishing down there so it's all all new to me <laughs> it'll be interesting to see what size they set the the limit i assume it's going to be some form of slot limit but they don't hit sexual maturity until like four to six years old depending mm-hmm. on whether it's a male or female but <clears throat> you're still talking about fish that are anywhere from 40 some odd inches up to 50 some odd inches when they hit maturity so i don't know if they're gonna set it at a smaller a smaller limit, uh, a smaller size limit, because they they want to take them when they're young, or they won't get to be old, or are they going to wait for them to be, uh, or are they going to wait for them to be breeding age before you take them? Yeah, I wonder. It'll be interesting. If it's breeding age, you're gonna you're gonna need to bring out the jack pole and then some for those things. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're big. I mean, we uh, I I think I've told this story on here before, but we went out and kept uh, camped at uh Fort Jefferson, which is uh out at the Marquesas, like. 70 miles out from Key West, further to the west. And uh, there's one that when the forestry service boat pulls in there, he, like, hangs out underneath the shadow of the forestry boat. And he must be, like you said, like the size of a Volkswagen. He's just massive. They're huge. I had a buddy of mine on a – I won't belabor the, the point anymore of grouper, but I did have a friend of mine, uh, Jay Platt, Louisiana, if he's listening. He was down here. We were in the Gulf. Uh, and he had one come up and grab a stringer full of fish from him that he had – actually latched into his bathing suit Ooh. and uh, I, I i did watch jay go tumbling down the reef, so, <laughs> ledge reef. but uh fortunately the stringer in the bathing suit gave gave way and uh lesson learned <laughs> yeah i do have one thing to add justin you just mentioned fort jefferson and the uh dry tortugas out there uh mm-hmm. that's also the biggest hermit crab i've ever seen that hermit crab was if you put two basketballs next to each other this hermit crab was the size of like the two basketballs in diameter and i was a, her- a hermit crab hermit yeah because there are i mean the hermit crabs are all over that island uh, along with conch shells too you can find conch shells everywhere but uh yeah i was up walking the wall there and just looked down in the water and this thing was absolutely gigantic uh i mean huh. m- massive just i don't know what they got in the water out there but my my uh my daughter got pinched by one. She got pinched by one the same uh, time we were camping out there. I kept telling her I was like, "Leave him alone, 
leave them alone, leave them alone. Because oh, at night man. you go like brush your teeth and you you run a little water out of the water can, brush your teeth or whatever, and you know, and spit it out and you look over a little bit later and shine your light and all the because there's no fresh water out there unless it rains. So all the hermit crabs will just be like congregated on top of that spot where you spilt that little bit of water. And so yep. she'd go over there and be like playing with them, and then sure enough, she hears like I hear this scream, Rah! and I'm like, oh no. And I go over there, and she's got like a hermit crab hanging from her finger. <laughs> just, Luckily, it wasn't the one you saw. <laughs> no, I mean, that thing would probably take off a hand. Uh, yeah, just a really cool place if anybody ever gets a chance to go. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. That The size of that place amazes me. I mean, they you say you can fit Yankee Stadium inside of the fort, which is, for something built in the 1800s, pretty wild. Yeah, still standing. Yep. Um, all right, well... Oh, we'll get into the main part of the show now. So we have uh, one of our field staff writers and contributors here. Uh, I'd like to introduce everyone to Adam Berkelmans. Welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here today. Yeah, yeah, we're we're starting to rotate and and get some of our field staff writers on here because you guys do such an amazing job uh, <laughs> at, at your contributions and your writing and your cooking and and everything you do that we want to further share you with the world uh, to get your story out there and, and uh, you know, get get these stories out there as well. So um, if you could for us, like, give us a little background on yourself, where you're from, uh, what you do, all that jazz. Sure. Um, like you said, I'm Adam Berkelmans. I'm also known as the Intrepid Eater um, on Instagram and Facebook, and I have a website. Uh, called IntrepidEater.com. Um, I'm a food writer and kind of a recipe developer. Uh, and I really started this project about almost exactly a year ago um, during COVID when, you know, I lost uh, job opportunities due to it and everything. So I thought I'd start something new and exciting. Um, I kind of started to promote cooking and eating real food um, from scratch, wild if possible, um, yeah, so it's just I've been kind of going through and sharing my daily meals and sharing recipes and and uh, kind of my adventures through this whole thing. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. Um, I grew up in London, Ontario, uh, which is kind of southwestern Ontario, close to Detroit, actually. I've been living all around Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, all around Canada. Uh, living and working, I've recently settled down in uh, a place just north of Kingston, Ontario, which is kind of closer to New York State. I'm definitely an adult onset hunter. Cool. Um, how how long have you been hunting? How did how did you get into hunting and fishing? I've only started barely two years ago. Uh, so it's something I've always wanted to do. No family, no friends into it at all growing up. Uh, no exposure whatsoever. Uh, I did fish. Like my dad took me fishing, but never for anything specific really. Um, and I've wanted to always wanted to um, get into it and and seeing it all from the kind of a food lens I wanted to explore new types of food and new wild food and uh, finally I've settled down in a place and met some some guys who've kind of helped me out and brought me out a little bit and uh, yeah so I just recently started hunting and getting into it which has been a lot of fun nice that's awesome what's uh what sort of inspired you to take that step partially just being in one place for long enough because uh, I've always I've been moving around a lot so you know whenever I started to meet people who hunted and thought maybe I could kind of get into it I'd 
pick up and move somewhere else due to a job opportunity or, or my partner's job opportunity or whatever. Uh, so I've been kind of settled down here for a couple of years in this area. And I just didn't want to go anymore. I didn't want to lose any more time before I started hunting. So I kind of thought to myself, I'm getting to an age. I got to start now. I got to start doing it now. So um, I took the very first opportunity I, I could and jumped right on it. Cool. Well, that's awesome. Um, so far, what, what's been your favorite thing to go after? I think Canada Goose has been my favorite. It's, I find it super exciting. You can, you know, you can chat with the, with your friends you're hunting with. You don't have to be super quiet or anything. It's, it's just, yeah, very exciting. Lots of meat outcome. I've never gone out and been skunked, which is nice because I've been skunked a lot for everything else I've gone out for. So, (laughs) uh, yeah. I like cooking, cooking with them too. So they're they're a cool challenge, and and I really love the taste of them. So yeah, Canada Goose. What's uh, what's been the favorite thing you you've been cooking with them? Uh, I don't know. I cook something different pretty much every time, actually. So it's hard to hard to choose a favorite. But uh, um, everything I've done has been great. Like uh, confit with the legs and the and the wings, and and kind of like medium rare um, breast applications. Like everything's been really good. I've been exploring different kind of international recipes using goose, so that's been a lot of fun. What's your best way to, to de-feather a whole goose? Uh, so far, it's just been time and patience. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Canada goose because uh, that's actually that was my Adventures for Food episode mm. uh, early on. was about uh, my first two goose hunts out here in Oregon, uh, the first one. I went out with some buddies from work, and we got completely skunked, like totally whiffed at these, I think it was like four or six geese flying straight over our blind, uh, and completely whiffed, didn't see another goose the rest of the day, and we went out the next week, and uh, they landed right in the middle of our decoy setup, it was awesome, took them down, um, but yeah, it's I always have trouble, I, I, well, I like to ask everybody what the best way to defeather birds is, especially waterfowl. Because um, I have, a, I'm not patient. Mm. And I have a horrible time. <laughs> so. Just got to exude that patience, Colin. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, I know. I I use the little blowtorch too to get rid of those mm-hmm. little, the last little bits of feather. Yeah. 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 I I got a question for you, Adam, mm-hmm. if you don't mind. I uh, I was taking a look at your uh, Cajun garlic butter goose bites. Oh yeah. And uh, as a guy that spends a fair amount of time in in uh, in the Crescent City, I got to ask how a gent. All the way up in Toronto, found out about Maju. Maju uh, looks like Machado. Oh, Machado. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's it's kind of how I Maju. how I research all my recipes. Like I just go, I kind of get excited about a, a certain culture, a certain a certain cuisine, and I start digging around and I lo- start looking for interesting recipes. And I spend way, way, way too much time like combing the internet for all this stuff. And uh, I kind of just highlight what looks interesting to me and uh, and kind of save it for later. And when I was making the garlic uh, goose bites, I wanted a side. And I had, I had run into that recipe probably a couple weeks before. And I kind of thought about it again. It'd be great to go with that. So, yeah, it's just a matter of, of internet research, basically. Because <laughs> like, you don't encounter that stuff up here. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. I'm inspired. For those guests that uh, may not know, can Adam or Jim, can you guys explain what Maju is? 
I'll let Jim take it because uh, I don't know. Oh. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, what what I learned, having never been even to to Louisiana or any areas down there, uh, is it's a it's a kind of deviation from from succotash, uh, where you take corn and often uh, some bacon and other ingredients and and um, kind of saute them up into a, a really tasty side dish. Uh, you want to expand on that at all, Jim? Or <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a. You tend to when I make it, I take the whole ear of corn. I don't start with canned corn, and I'll take a knife and I scrape. I scrape the. I'm using my hands here. You can't see it on the podcast, but I scrape the uh, corn right from the or the kernels right from the corn cob, and it gives you that you know, that rich, starchy, milky goodness that you get because some of the corn gets a little bit crushed, and then as Adam was saying the next greatest ingredient, of course, is bacon. And then you can throw in, in, in a different variety of Cajun spices, maybe a little tomato, a little, little mirepoix. Um, and the whole combination is, it's not creamed corn, but it's certainly not, it's, it's not succotash either. It's just something very New Orleans in between. And it's, or it's very Louisiana. And it's, it's one of my favorite ways to eat corn. If you haven't done it, uh, I, I'd look it up and give it a shot. I think your family will probably love it. Yeah, it's super tasty. Um... The one I made, I never tried the the real deal down south, but what I've made was was excellent, and I'm gonna definitely make with fresh corn come August time. So yeah, I'm looking forward to trying your recipe. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I was gonna say earlier about about your question, the goose feathers. Um, I was gonna say a little bit of, of patience. You, you kind of have to set aside an afternoon for it. I think like if you're expecting to get through it really quickly, yeah, it's not gonna work. So I usually actually put it on a Harvest Nature podcast sit down ah have a nice. set my setup where i'm nice and comfortable and and i yeah. pick as much as i possibly can and then bring them into the kitchen i have a little blowtorch like justin mentioned just okay torch off those last little feathers and uh even if the, once in a while you get a goose where you just can't get all of it off usually i'll just um take that skin and render it even with the feathers on uh just so i can get some goose fat out of the deal still and you don't have any problem with the feathers coming through with like the rendered fat or anything? No, I just passed it through a sieve after. Uh, there's barely any feathers. Okay. There's just a couple, a couple of the the remnants and leftovers. Um, yeah. yeah. So at least I still get the the I've... fat as the end product. So yeah. All right, that's good to know. Have you heard that Justin's voice is uh, makes people hungry when they listen to the podcast? <laughs> that explains why I'm always so hungry when I'm plucking geese. <laughs> That's right. The, the, his his calming voice makes people hungry. We had that that comment from through. So I've heard. It's my uh, it's my my melodic undertones. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, melodic undertones. Um, great great compliment, by the way. Uh, yeah, I've I've used the torch method. Um, I haven't really got into the wax method, which I've heard from a lot of people is pretty effective, uh, especially for like, smaller ducks and stuff. But um, have you ever had any like burnt like kind of like a burnt feather aftertaste come through when you cook waterfowl when you if you not use a blowtorch. really though i tried to do as much as i possibly can before using a blowtorch so i don't kind of pluck it half ass and think okay. oh, i'll just torch the rest of it i try to do as much as i physically can and then use a torch for the last little remnants and then i find you avoid yeah. any big like okay. that gross burnt flavor from the the feathers yeah, that's that's what I, I'm. Trying I got to one. I got one step for you further, Colin. If you really want to get into it, get some yeah. tweezers. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh yeah, and 
individually pick yeah. out every feather. I mean, not like yeah, as picking. a whole, but like as because you know some break off or yeah. you know some like it's it's a it's a for real technique because sometimes in restaurants you get birds that are broken down and at the commercial level the way they run those things through the pluckers sometimes it'll just rip off the feather and you end up with like the i don't know what is it the quill part of it still stuck in the skin and you, you literally have to go over it with the, oh yeah you know with a pair of tweezers to get it suitable to serve um usually also the last time you probably order from that hmm, purveyor okay. but um you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's uh yeah it, yeah these are these are all good tips i'm just i'm collecting hot tips for uh, September goose and duck season coming up. And I definitely months. use tweezers once or twice. For for geese, you might want to step it up to needle nose pliers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, that's what I use. Yeah, I, I use needle nose, to, especially on those the, uh, stabilizer feathers and things like that. They're just oh, that's a good idea. Tough when they break off in the wing. I, I go to needle nose. Good tips. I appreciate that we're having this conversation that we're all using like full birds, like not just. I mean, there's a time and place to breast the bird out, but uh, I, I appreciate the use of the full animal for sure, even though it takes a little extra time. So it's a good conversation for sure. I was just, let me know when you have somebody on that, that manages yeah. to pluck an entire sandhill crab. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sick days. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So look, looking at some of your dishes, uh, you know, mention you mentioned a lot of international dishes and stuff like that. Like, I think that's that's really cool um, because you don't often see that in the space. People people will bring forward recipes that they're comfortable with, but I see a lot of your recipes that are like completely outside the box, which I absolutely love. Um, it's really awesome, and the photography. The ingredients, I your attention details are so awesome. Oh, thank you. It's like scrolling through an art book. That's high compliments. I, I like that. When uh, whenever you're you're putting together your plans for cooking uh, a dish, like, where's your inspiration coming from outside of like, hey, I want to do something you know specific to a culture or where I've seen like where you where you're drawing that idea from. I kind of just completely uh especially since covid happened where i have so much time on my hands now like i've just ensconced myself in food so i like read about food i i watch things about food i i obviously cook and eat it i just think about it a lot um and i just keep a notebook or the notes on my computer and whenever i'm i see something that's interesting or, or sparks an idea i just write it down and i have a list of probably like 300 things now that i want to cook uh whoa yeah so just it's awesome this ever churning idea machine and uh yeah it could be from from like a new cookbook i I just received i read through it i kind of read cookbooks like a novel from front to back and then put it away instead of cooking Mm -hmm. recipes out of out of each one of them and uh if i see certain things if i have like a food memory 
uh, from traveling. Um, like the other day, I, I've been to uh, Istanbul before, and we were eating um, Turkish Delight. And I thought to myself the other day, just out of nowhere, sitting on the couch, could you make wild Turkish Delight? Like out of spruce tips or wild rose or any, or any of these kind of ingredients? And that just kind of sparks in my head. So I write it down, and I start doing some research to see whether or not that's a possibility. Uh, so that's just one example. But yeah, so it's, that's kind of the process I go through. And it's, it's a lot of combing through the internet, going through different blogs and sites, uh, reading tons of cookbooks, um, just kind of immersing myself in, in food and, and cooking. Now, do you, do you gravitate towards newer cookbooks or older cookbooks? Mostly newer cookbooks, actually. I find the older ones, um, they can be really good. But like a lot of the old wild game cookbooks I, I've read, um, they're all very like kind of simple, like, you know, fry and bacon grease, add flour or mushroom soup kind of thing, uh, which is fine. It's always tasty like that. But I'm looking for new, <laughs> vibrant, kind of colorful things. And I, you don't tend to find vibrant food as much in the old cookbooks. Yeah. So if I'm buying cookbooks now, I usually buy cookbooks that have like uh, regional specific, like a regional food, like Persian or, or regional Chinese food or something. Or maybe like a specific ingredient, um, like Jennifer McLaughlin. She's written a few books on um, called like Bones, Fat, Blood, The Odd Bits. Like those kind of books can teach you a ton, and and you can just yeah yeah use them all for wild game. Like all that stuff is perfect for wild game. So that's how I tend to find my cookbooks these days. That's awesome. I like it. I also like the fact that you're. Uh, it appears you're an Anthony Bourdain fan. Yeah, huge. <laughs> You got a got a good quote here. Good food and good eating are about risk. So, I think that's that's a pretty applicable quote to the uh, the outdoor world and and the hunting and fishing for food because it's definitely you're, you're assuming a little more risk than than other folks. Absolutely, and you're taking a bit of a risk even in in cooking because it's not just such a stable ingredient. Like it's not a a chicken mm-hmm. breast that's been cooked a million times. Everyone knows a chicken breast is. is you know, cooking wild food could be a little more challenging or intimidating. It's it's taking a risk, but the rewards are also there because if you cook it right, it's way better than a chicken breast. Yeah, a lot more flavors there, a lot more opportunity to uh, to bring out flavors that you wouldn't normally find uh, in a lot of domestic meats, which is cool because mm-hmm. you're you're becoming uh you know the more the more you do it, and the more like. For example, you stepping outside the box, you're pioneering things people have never made. Like nobody's maybe thought of these things, which is great. Yeah, it's a lot of a lot of fun doing that. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you too. I'm I'm a Bourdain fan as well. I just got his uh, the newest book they just oh, released. new book, uh, World Travel: The Revelant Guide. Yeah, bought that for my plane ride. Oh, perfect. So that's on my to read list. At large, <laughs> it's it's a big uh, it's a big book too. <laughs> Not many pictures, so it's gonna take me a little bit. <laughs> um, so let's see, let's let's dive a little bit into some of your recipes here. I mean, we already talked about one. Jim brought up a great one. I really like. Uh, let's look at the uh, the Egyptian duck liver sandwich. Which, when I saw that one come out, 
I'd say it's probably one of the most unique recipes I've seen come out on Harvesting Nature in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also it uh, it gathered the attention of Hank Shaw as well, who uh, he he thought that was uh, very interesting, and I'm I would probably say he's going to make it. Why not? We'll assume so. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> it's always nice when he likes something. He's he's yeah. done so much. Sometimes when I have the, like, this crazy, crazy idea that for sure no one's ever thought of before, I, I Google it and Hank Shaw comes up every single time. So, <laughs> yep. so he's, he knows, he knows what he's doing. So <laughs> Adam, how do you, how do you pronounce the, uh, the traditional name for it? I mean, we have the Egyptian duck liver sandwiches, but how would you pronounce the actual like traditional name? I would say, I'm, I don't speak any um, Arab anything, but I would say it's Kebda Iskandari. Yeah. And Iskandari is just um, okay. is a city, so Alexandria, a, a sandwich famous in Alexandria, basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I usually when I, uh, when I see the recipes come in and there's a, a, a very complicated uh, ethnic name coming through, I can pretty much assume that it's one of Adam's. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> I like it. They're they're really they're really interesting Sounds to read good. about before I before I post about them. So I like it. Yeah, I find it very exciting digging into some of these different cuisines like that. It's never boring, that's for sure. <laughs> so what led you what led you to discover this one? This one is actually um, I was just I was thinking of of street food and how like I, I really enjoy traveling when when we used to be able to do that um and i always first thing i i when we decided on a country we're going to I, I look up the street food and where like what i can eat when i show up to the major major cities there and uh like what is everyone else eating that's good um so i was thinking about street food and how i just love it and how Generally, street food is never wild game because you don't have enough wild game to, to serve the masses. But if you make it at home, you can actually convert wild game and, and use it in, in different street food recipes. So I basically just went on Google and started looking up famous street foods from around the world and went through all these different lists and, and you know top 10 lists and blogs and all these different things. And, and this one popped up eventually and really stuck out to me. And um, I'm always looking for for liver recipes and for awful recipes because I'm a, I really enjoy eating notes of tail and trying to use everything. And liver is always one that I'm I don't always love liver. I, I, like there's not many foods that I have a hard time with, but liver is sometimes one of those. So if I can find a liver recipe that's awesome, then I'm jumping all over it. So uh, yeah, this one popped up and I and I and I made I made the recipe and it was amazing. So yeah. And it, originally, it has it's made with water buffalo liver, actually. Huh. And uh, yeah, water buffalo which, liver. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of crazy. Uh, something you wouldn't find here, I don't think. But uh, I found I thought with you could use venison liver for this recipe or any liver. But I thought duck liver is usually one of the more mild ones in terms of wild game livers, and that would be a better one to start out with if you were gonna gonna take a, a leap of faith and try this recipe then maybe start with duck livers and if you enjoy it then move your way up to the stronger tasting livers like like venison colin did you save any, did you save any of those duck livers uh i did not save the duck livers uh un- unfortunately so uh, this season i will not be making the egyptian duck liver sandwich but uh a question for you adam what species sure. of duck did you use and 
do you think that would have any difference in flavor or taste coming through? To tell you the truth, I, all the ducks and geese that I get, um, I throw all the livers into little sandwich bags, um, like half pound each, and I throw them in the freezer. Okay. Uh, just in little half pound portions, and then I can just use them for whatever liver recipes I use. So I have no idea if this was actually okay. uh, mallard or black duck or what other ones I get, or wood duck, I'm actually quite sure. Uh it's like a it's like a box of chocolates, but a box of duck livers. Exactly, so. <laughs> just as tasty. <laughs> all right, that's a good way. Because if you throw all your livers in one huge bag, then freeze them, you have to come up with this massive liver dish, and you're probably not going to want to eat it all. So it's better to, to portion small amounts. You can do right. smaller recipes. It's, it's not something you want to eat all the time, right? That's a yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I don't know. I'm I'm with you. I I sometimes have a hard time getting through livers. Uh, some of the other, some of the other in internal me- organs I I do, but just, I don't mm. know liver. I uh, I don't know. Now, ever since I was a kid, I've tried. You know, I, I enjoy uh, like a pate mm-hmm. or foie gras or some of those, but sometimes I just it's a lot. There's a lot there to just take in and yeah, hold absolutely. on to. <laughs> it's yeah, it's a challenging one. But- and I think this recipe is good because it's it's highly seasoned, so you're mm-hmm. not going to notice that livery taste so much. It's there, it's creamy, but it's not so strong and, and coppery or whatever that like that, those kind of metallic flavors that people taste. You've got you get like the you get the jalapenos and stuff in there too, and that the heat. Yeah, that cuts it through, and then a tahini sauce that really that has a little bit of a bit of bitterness into it. And that really offsets some of that bitterness from the from the livers as well. So, so this, I would say, mm-hmm. if I was going to describe the taste of this to someone, I would say it's like because you fry up some onions and peppers with the livers too. It's I would say it's kind of like a Middle Eastern fajita on a bun. So like a beef fajita kind of thing, but all stacked on a bun. So you can't go wrong with that. I like it. It's all it's it's so good, and it you know. As adventurous, I eat. I'm I'm on the same lines with you. Like I go someplace. I love to travel too, uh, not just in the U.S. but like all over the world. And I I will uh, do a lot of research on food before I get there because I want to eat. Maybe not in like you know the number one restaurant or Michelin star restaurants. Although those are amazing. Uh, if you get the opportunity to do that, do it at least once. But the places where you expect to find good food that everyone is eating. And I mean, everyone who lives there, exactly. not everyone who's visiting there. And, uh, you know, I think I found more interesting meals and I kind of live by the mantras, like eat, eat the street food, drink the water, like do as the locals do. And, you know, most of the time you're going to end up okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at least build up some immunity. And you get a good story out of it too. <laughs> Like the the going to a fancy restaurant, it's it's a fun fun experience, but you don't get a good story out of it. But if you're eating some crazy thing in the middle of nowhere on the street, like I don't know, there's probably a, a better story connected to it. And it's kind of like hunting and fishing. Like there's always a story connected to your meal, and I think that's important. It makes things taste better. So yeah, there is a just a quick story about that. Um, <laughs> I was in Golfito, Costa Rica one time. <laughs> And uh, if you've ever been to Golfito... I have a Golfito story, too. (laughs) All right. Uh, (laughs) If you've ever been to Golfito, there are no five-star hotels or restaurants there. Um, 
but they do have good food. In fact, there's like a little restaurant that's kind of right across the bay where, uh, where you arrive at, and um, they have prices for whole snapper, but they all they have is a small, medium, or large snapper. And uh, so me being the you know, with me and my machismo, I um, I went with the large snapper, and this thing was absolutely massive. And it was a fried snapper; it was delicious, but I couldn't finish it. But I mean, I think it ended up costing me like twelve bucks <laughs> or something for like this huge snapper, like this whole rice and bean plate and everything. But it was so good, uh, and just like yeah, I think you're right. Just finding like sometimes yeah. those little kind of off the beaten path <laughs> food places, they can just deliver so much good food for you. You actually you made the perfect segue, Colin. So I thank you for that because I wanted to talk about. I was, I was scrolling your Instagram and you have like a uh, it's a Pike, mm. I think a Pike breakdown, and that thing it's just just pretty awesome the way that you laid that out the picture one but two i'm curious like what all you did with all the variety of cuts so those those were two pike there and i actually up here and uh and i spent the entire winter ice fishing it was the first time i've I've gone ice fishing before and then every morning i'd get up and trudge outside and and fish and i caught pretty much nothing for the entire winter except one good day and those two pike came up so um a buddy and i caught them um so i was pretty excited those are very special fish to me <laughs> so much and effort into them so uh yeah but i broke them down um if you go to the instagram you can see the picture but basically i, I took one and and cut a stakes uh the other one I, I cut into kind of the the five fillet style with the like i saw the y bones um and then the tails, the the colors, the heads, kind of everything from those fish, and I've used it all. I think I I uh, I mm-hmm. made um, it was actually a super cool dish called uh, I think that it's called Rastagai. It's a Russian um, kind of a Russian fish pie, uh, and it's really incredible. And I, and I basically put the pike and uh, pike liver in it, actually, which is something. You should probably eat only out of clean lakes in in the mm. moderation, but I wanted to try it out. So, uh, the liver just kind of enriches it, and they were just really good. And it's often served with a a soup called I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but uka. Um, and you actually the pastries are made with a little hole in the top, and you pour the soup into the pastry before eating, and then it's almost like a big soup dumpling. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, I recently I saved the whole tail portion and I and I made like a kind of a Thai chili sweet chili Ooh, roasted cool. tail. Um, you can just use it almost like a whole like a roast, and uh, and just go picking through it. So it, pike have a lot of bones, but if you're willing to once again be a little patient and and pick through, it's it's definitely worth eating the whole fish. They're they're mm-hmm. amazing. They're often known as like a trash fish for some reason, but they're they're really good tasting tons of meat on them i uh i i love pike like uh it's one of my favorites we had it we were fishing in um in north dakota and one of the guys we stumbled on was fishing the same spot and we had caught a couple of the pikes he's like let me show you let me show you boys how to fillet that up and he like taught us to cut around the y bone and stuff and i was like man this meat is so good uh i made ended up making a like a a pike creole jim you'll appreciate this Mm. one so like uh you know your tomato sauce and and all the all the veggies in there and man it was so good we ate it at the camp that night oh loved it you know you're going down the pike thing and uh 
I stumbled on your, I'm looking at your website, obviously. I stumbled on your pike mm-hmm. row recipe. And yeah. I'm a fish egg guy. And again, going back to using the whole animal, I think that overwhelming amount of fish eggs go right in the dumpster. Um, more of a kudos, but again, one of those other things I want to, I, I intend to steal from you. But I noticed that it's cured. I haven't had a chance to to look through it. Uh, can, can you touch on that just a little bit as to their curing process? Yeah, so, so it's... Kind of like caviar, basically, or or any like um, fish roe you'd find at a sushi restaurant. Uh, so you basically, uh, it's it's best to freeze the freeze the roe for for a few days to kill any any nasties in there, um, and then let it thaw out in the fridge. And then you're just going to break open the skeins, which is the um, kind of the skins that hold all the eggs together. Brush them out into a sieve kind of rinse them off and then do a really light cure in in salt water for just a matter of uh i think i have just hours on there uh not that long at all and then uh yeah kind of uh rinse them off and and it, that's all there is to it they're actually it's a little finicky like thumbing through all the eggs and separating them and everything but the end product is is delicious and i made uh i made sushi with it um and then if you don't want to go through all that trouble with the with the curing process with the eggs, you can actually just keep the whole skeins, uh, chop them up and fry them with, with eggs, and they're delicious. And I have a recipe for um, egg skagina, which is like a Pakistani scrambled eggs kind of dish with those in it, which is also delicious. So definitely worth keeping, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, that's so awesome. I'm, I'm excited to get back in, uh, back in pike territory. And in Colorado – you can uh you can spear them. Oh wow. Uh, so I'm going to do some like uh I'm going to buy a thicker wetsuit and uh actually start taking my daughter out cuz I'm not as concerned about sharks and whatnots if I'm out there spearing. Uh, you can spear pike and uh carp, mm. I believe, which should be kind of fun. Cool. Carp is on my to-do list this summer. I want to cuz that's another like trash fish in I'm air quoting here and yeah. and most of the world eats and loves carp. And in North America, we don't, and there's no real good reason for that. I feel like a lot of these trash fish are actually just hard to deal with because there's a lot of bones. And once you know how to do bones, they're all mm-hmm. delicious. So so that's my project this summer is to try to prove that carp is, is worth eating. Nice. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, there's a, a big move down here in the States, uh, like Kentucky. They're trying to really double down on the efforts. There's a big... Uh, I guess invasion of carp in in the Mississippi River and in a lot of the waterways in that area, and it's uh you know the the states are trying to double down and and encourage people to consume them, create commercial markets, like all this stuff, and it's uh I don't know how receptive the population is of it, but I would like to see it see everyone more receptive and eat. You know, I'm a big fan of eating invasive, so yeah, me too. why not? Sometimes you just have to rename it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll give it something. You know, uh, what, what was the one? That, it was yeah. Ted that they renamed. I forget. My favorite is the Patagonian toothfish was renamed to Chilean sea bass. That was it. Yeah. That was yeah. one yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> and look how well that did. Yeah. Now it's on every restaurant menu on the West Coast. It's like a delicacy, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's let's talk real quick since we're still on pike those Moroccan pike meatballs uh, on couscous. So you posted those over on the community page. So I would say like Colin mentioned earlier, you're 
you're pretty awesome at posting some of your recipes and photos on on the community page which is great because it gives us a point to all kind of talk about it a little bit more and gives the the people who regularly follow that page uh i guess not page group who are in that group the opportunity to sort of interact and ask questions so I encourage everyone to go check that out too. But Moroccan pike meatballs. You often don't see, I'll, I'll caveat this, in North America, a lot of fish in meatballs. Um, yeah, I'm not sure how how popular uh, yeah. it is anywhere in the world. Uh, I guess in, in Asia, they do a lot of these uh, very like springy kind of fish balls. Um, yep. But that... That one came out of kind of necessity, that recipe, because uh, this a neighbor who um, they recently went vegan and they still had some some meat in the freezer and they offered it to me because um, she knows I've been doing all these recipes and everything. And she said, I have this fish. It's in a block of ice. I'm not sure what it is. It's probably crappier <laughs> pike and there could be bones in it still. I'm not sure. So and it's been in my freezer for probably a year and a half. So I'm like, okay, I can work with this. Uh, so I thought, how am I going to, you know, disguising off flavors, deal with any bones that I can't see, uh, deal with a fish I know, I'm not even sure if it's pike or crappy. And I thought maybe if I grind it up, like pass it to the meat grinder, then I don't have to worry about all this stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so I did that. And then it was actually really like easy to work with. And then I just started doing like a normal meatball recipe, eggs, breadcrumbs. Um, and it, they were kind of forming together really nicely. So I looked through my spice cabinet and uh, to think what I'm going to do with these things. And there's a spice called Raz El Hanout, which is like a, a Moroccan blend of spices kind of similar to to like a north african curry kind of thing and uh yeah i put that in and fried a little piece up to try it and it was awesome so yeah the dish was kind of born from there so i made like a, a tomato sauce with chickpeas and, and served over couscous and they were amazing so i'm gonna definitely keep that recipe in mind for for if i ever am given a block of random fish again or <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to give this one a try, too, because my, my wife uh, eats primarily fish, and, you know, uh, the opportunity to eat meatballs isn't always there. But, uh, yeah, it looks really cool. I'm, I'm going to try it with some saltwater fish, I think. Uh, I'll give it a go. We actually got grouper and hogfish opening up this weekend down here, so this may end up on the list. Yeah. I'm sure it will work with, with pretty much any fish, so, yeah, yeah. I think it will be great. Cool. Um what do you guys have any other uh, questions? We're we're starting to tick out of time here. Yeah, I've got a a question for Adam that we were talking about a little earlier. Um, a lot of your recipes seem to come from like African or Middle Eastern inspiration. Would you say that is your favorite region to pull from, or do you have a different favorite region? And is there a region uh, that you haven't pulled uh, from that you'd like to try? <laughs> yes, kind I, of a three-parter. So I've actually I've been to to South Africa, Mozambique, and I've been to Jordan in the Middle East. And I think having been there and and seen it, I, I have an affinity kind of for the place, and I really love, you know, searching new recipes. Um, but Africa is a huge place. Like Africa is massive, and there's so many different regional foods. And it's a, like once you start looking into it, oh, yeah. it's Organic. it's really it's not. It, it's a big 
kind of cuisine that hasn't been about, uh, and all the separate little cuisines in the continent have been talked about, and, and it's a super exciting one. And I would recommend and learn more about African food because it's absolutely incredible. Um, so I really love drawing from there. The Middle East um, has just some amazing food. Find all the food there is like comfort food to me. It's just all really kind of hearty and, and nice. And then uh, I really love drawing from Asia too, actually. And, and Sichuan in particular is probably my favorite food. Something that's really spicy and lots of flavor. Um, you probably notice in all my recipes, I love big flavors, vibrant, colorful food, uh, lots of spice and lots of fresh herbs and everything. So any cuisine that can, that can hand me those things, I'm, I'm all over. So, uh, and in terms of something that I'd like to get into, um, I don't actually know all that much about South American food. It's, it's something that I'd like to know more about. So that's something I'm going to look into more and more and, and see if I can kind of dig in past the, you know, like the generic dishes that you know about and dig into the regions and see, see what they have to offer. Hey, I will tell you, per- Peruvian food, uh, one, phenomenal. Two, I think it was three, three out of the top 15 restaurants in the world uh, this last year were in Peru. Next big, next big thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah. The it's the food there. Seafood, everything from seafood to you know, uh, land based food, just phenomenal. So good. Yeah, I think you'll have a lot of uh, good fish inspiration down there too. Dishes, mm-hmm. fish dishes that with a Caribbean or South American inspiration. I mean, just especially with the Caribbean, so much of that is is sea based and fishing based. And I think I was in martinique and i had parrot fish and i've never seen that anywhere else in any other menu um but it was delicious and it was just something i never would have really thought of but well don't uh don't forget about the chilean sea bass oh yeah. my toothfish <laughs> is my favorite so. <laughs> don't the uh don't the parrot fish aren't they susceptible to carry sigmataria isn't that part of the reason why you don't see them a lot of places i don't know um i will say martinique wasn't necessarily the cleanest place I've been. Um, it was still fantastic. I mean, I love every island in the Caribbean. It's they're amazing places. But uh, I don't know. I didn't get sick afterwards. Um, Obviously it worked out. Yeah, I was gonna say. I guess everything worked out okay. <laughs> but uh, sandwich. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I wasn't familiar with that at the time that I ate it. If I was, maybe I would have chosen something <laughs> different. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's all I mean, about it risk on the menu. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. Would Anthony Bourdain have eaten it? Probably. So you know, I'm okay with it. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, um, I, I think, uh, I think, unfortunately, we're out of time. Adam, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Other than we've mentioned your Instagram, we've mentioned website, Facebook, our community group. Uh, any anything else we should hit? Uh, yeah, I have the website, intrepidator.com. You can sign up for monthly newsletter. I kind of break down, like, just common, more common ingredients, like vinegar, eggs, or oil, like, and really go in deep. Those are a lot of fun. Uh, or you could always invite me out on a hunt or fishing trip and, yeah, show me around. That's an easy way to connect with me and get me out there. (laughs) Yeah, man, for sure. Well, um, you know, this is... This is kind of the point in the show where we do our uh, sort of round last fires, alibis, uh, saved rounds. So being that you're the, the guest today, you got a last thought for us all? 
Sure. Um, just like everyone know that it's, you know, when you're dealing with wild game, any food in particular, but it, or any food in general, but wild game in particular, um, just like broaden your horizon. Uh, it's, you, you can cook new things, uh, and most things are good if you cook them right. So all these things that you've been told your whole life that don't taste good, uh, they probably do. You just need to cook them right. So, you know, do your research, learn, broaden your horizons, try new things, take risks. It's well worth it. I have not had a bad meal out of any of this stuff yet, and uh, I have tons to explore, but I think I'm just, I'm going to have a hard time finding a bad meal out of it. So, yeah. That's awesome. Jim, you got a last thought for us? I just want to say thank you. Thanks for having me on, and, and thank you for all you guys do. Um, earlier, I was telling Adam that I'm going to be poaching most of his recipes next season, especially if they have to do <laughs> liver and eggs and all those wobbly bits. They're my favorite things. I'll even cook spleen every now and again. So, no, thanks for having me on, and uh, it's been great, man. You guys are awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Colin? Yeah, I just wanted to also say thanks uh, to Adam and Jim both for joining us tonight. Um, and Adam is a huge contributor to our Facebook community group, um, so please check it out and the stuff that he posts on there. He has a lot of really great, really great recipes, really great photos. Uh, I mean, I think you could spend a considerable amount of time just scrolling through his Instagram, looking at the different dishes and what's in them and trying to pronounce the names right, which is awesome. I mean, there's just so much diversity throughout the dishes that he makes. Uh, it's really cool to hear from him firsthand tonight about the inspiration behind him. So looking forward to seeing more of it. I uh, I think probably the thing that makes me most happy is, is like I mentioned earlier, just like your idea of cooking outside the box and like going outside of some of the traditional stuff. Traditional recipes are all good. They're traditional for a reason because people like them, comfort foods. They're steeped in culture and all that. But when you see things that are like, huh, that that's cool or that makes me excited or I hadn't thought about that before, like that part of the culinary world always excites me twofold because one, it, it, it encourages conversation towards that and you're like having a direct effect in in the culinary world of wild fish and game cooking one and then two uh you know it challenges me personally and and I like to be challenged and I like to be like I need to think outside the box as well like maybe I'm thinking too much to a mold that I'm living in and I need to to step out and and see what I can explore and uh you know take some of the travel and experiences and stuff that I have that often same as you spawn spawn uh some of the recipes that i create and and do the same or, or maybe more maybe i need to get man i can't wait for this whole covid mess to be over so the the world can i can resume traveling uh like i used to so there's a lot to see out there there's a lot to eat out there and uh and then there's us hunting and fishing and cooking which is awesome so with that, thanks for coming on the show, Jim. Thanks for hanging out and being an awesome, uh, an awesome guest, and it, it was great. So I will say to everyone out there, make sure you're following Adam on uh, social media. Check out his uh, recipes, website, all that. Once you're done with that, head over to Harvesting Nature's social media, and hopefully you've clicked that follow button already. If not, you should be. And then uh, whatever podcast platform you listen to, punch that five-star button. Tell us what we're doing wrong or, you know, tell us what we're doing right. Thanks, everybody, and have a good night.
Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.